2: Take that, you no-good, low-life, lily-livered blue and blackers!
3: I can't believe we're having a civil war about the color of that dress.
2: Gold and white forever! It's more than just the dress, Marcus!
3: Mm, What else is it about?
2: Have you already forgotten about the battle of whether the picture is of a duck or a rabbit? We lost some good men that day, and they were damn good men. I will not rest until I get my revenge on those dirty duck people! Wait, did our side see a duck or a rabbit?
3: Hmm. Didn't we also lose some below-average men that day?
2: Technically, yes. We lost two good men, uh, five below-average men, and one man who might have actually been an orangutan who accidentally put on one of our uniforms.
3: So from a certain perspective, that battle improved us by thinning out some of the below-average...
2: Stop! Stop, 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 stop! I know where you're going, but this isn't a certain perspective because that would imply that there are other perspectives worth talking about, and there aren't. That's what this whole war is about, Marcus. We have to stop pretending that there are several ways of looking at things. There's only one. Some people are so unfortunate that they cannot see that one way, and we have no choice but to kill all of them.
3: But the terrible waste 1.8 million de. Hey, did you see that? What just ran past us?
2: Yeah, it was a. It was a duck bunny in a, a dress that was both gold and white and black and blue. Oh, Marcus! I was wrong. We are all one nation, one people, except the people who put dresses on animals. I have to wonder about them. And I have been wrong, so wrong, to feed the flames of war. Blue-black soldiers, I rise now to wave the flag of peace. I'm hit. I'm hit. Marcus, you have to carry my truth forward.
3: But what is your truth?
2: that it really is okay to see a duck or a bunny and we should get along or maybe it's the opposite oh marcus marcus i see the light i see a figure coming toward me wearing cargo shorts and a shirt that doesn't fit it's colin McEnroe.
4: she used her last breath to say my name all right, so um, people do fight about odd things, uh, and sometimes with historical perspective, it seems kind of amazing uh, what they're fighting about. But uh, in the book that we're about to talk about today, which is, you know, I think it's fair to say that it is, it is, if not the it book of the summer, certainly one of the it books of the summer. Uh, American War, a novel by Omar El Akkad. Um, we see the United States coming apart, uh, coming apart again, having a civil war, essentially over petroleum... Well, actually, I'm going to set it up a different way. I'm going to set it up before we talk to Omar. Uh, let's go to the audiobook and you can hear a little bit of uh, Ben Chestnut. He's kind of a um, master narrator. Uh, he's telling us, basically, what is going to happen uh, as you hear the story of, I believe, his aunt, uh, Sirat Chestnut.
3: I belong to what they call the miraculous generation. Those born in the years between the start of the Second American Civil War in 2074 and its end in 2095. Some extend the definition further, including those born during the decade long plague that followed the end of the war. This country has a long history of defining its generations by the conflicts that should have killed them, and my generation is no exception. We are the few who escaped the wrath of the homicide bombers and the warring birds. The few who are spirited into well-stocked cellars or tornado shelters before the reunification plague spread across the continent. The few who are just plain lucky.
4: And so you're you're hearing uh, something from the very beginning of this novel. As it unfolds, it's a lot of different things. It really is a, a meditation on things that drive us apart, but it's also kind of a sprawling Dickens novel, where the Fagans uh, are people who recruit uh, young terrorists and uh, what are called homicide bombers. Uh, it's also a picture of America, the United States of America, as a failed state. It's all of those things. That all sounds very dark, but it's also very, very Engrossing novel, but it's also very dark. So joining us now is the author, uh, Omar El Akkad. Uh, first of all, welcome to this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I think I do want to begin with what I found to be, in in many respects, the most jarring reality in this novel. Uh, There's a character named Gaines. He is kind of a Fagin, a man who recruits younger people to do acts of violence on behalf of of one of the splintered southern causes in this book. Um, But at one point he says, uh, he's asked by the protagonist, Surratt, what an empire is. And he says, we used to be an empire. Uh, and then he talks about the, the two remaining uh, empires, global empires that still do exist. And I it was sort of at that point, I hadn't really put words to it. I thought, right, this is about the United States of America as a failed state. And that's something I think that Americans will have some trouble wrapping their minds around. It's. I think we have it in our heads that we'll be the last intact and successful state if things really come to the most horrible pass. So talk a little bit about your decision to kind of frame it that way.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the things that you get to do when you're, when you're an author is come up with a really sort of um, a neat creation myth mm-hmm. for how the book came about. Um, And of course, there's no such thing. It's not like, you know, this thing happened and then I wrote a book. Uh, (laughs) Novels are much, much messier than that. Um, But the closest I can come to to a kind of Genesis moment for the book was was many years ago. I have a vague recollection of of watching an interview with a with a foreign affairs expert. I forget if it was on CNN or one of the other news networks. Um, But this interview was taking place in the immediate aftermath of a set of protests. That had happened in afghanistan local villagers were protesting against the u.s military presence there and the question that was put to this gentleman was something along the lines of why do they hate us so much and as part of his answer he noted that um, sometimes the u.s special forces go looking for insurgents in these villages so they'll conduct these nighttime raids and that during these raids sometimes they'll ransack the houses and hold the women and children at gunpoint Uh, and then he helpfully added. Um, and you know, in Afghan culture, that sort of thing is considered very offensive. And I thought, you know, name me one culture on earth that wouldn't consider this sort of thing offensive. Um, and that's when I started thinking about this idea of of taking these conflicts that have defined the world in my lifetime. Uh, and these are conflicts in which US involvement has either been indirect or from a great distance uh, and recasting them as something very close to home, uh, in this case, uh, a civil war. Uh, and that's how I started first thinking about the, the the shape of this novel.
4: So the the primary perspective of this novel is from kind of the southern side of this twenty first late twenty first century civil war. And the southern side, uh, this time uh, as last time, is the side that at least initially is a little harder to sympathize with. These are the so-called mag state states that even after the world has essentially been devastated by climate change, the cities of the eastern seaboard are gone, uh, You know, everybody sees what the lesson is, and, and everybody else is learning to live off the wind and sun, these are these states with this kind of rattlesnake ferocity that are really resisting um, that kind of change. Um, and, and so, Omar, that makes them, theoretically anyway, the least sympathetic cause that one can imagine. Yet you invite us into their much more empathetic world. Talk some about that. Why did you decide to have it be from this perspective?
1: So I, I spent quite a bit of time as a journalist uh, covering wars um, you know, i wouldn't call myself a war correspondent but i've been to places like afghanistan and i covered the arab spring and i, I covered the military trials in guantanamo bay um so i've seen wars and i've seen the sort of um, the offshoots and consequences of wars um, and it was important for me to to set the book on the losing side of a war um, because very early on in this novel that yes there's a civil war but the north essentially wins the north wins the military battles very quickly they have the superior military And what follows is a sort of years long insurgency, uh, where the South sort of refuses to give up and you have all these militias and insurgents who continue, continue the war against all hope. Um, But one of the things that I was trying to explore in the book was was the idea of what it feels like to be on the losing end of a war, Um, which, you know, in the part of the world that we live in, we're privileged enough to not have that experience in a mass sense. Um, You know, if you live in Afghanistan you've been on the losing end of a war for 30 plus years. Um, And to me, the sort of defining experience of being on the losing end of a war is that it feels like moving backwards in time. Um, You know, the novel is set 60 years in the future, um, but much of it takes place in the South and it doesn't feel very futuristic. It feels like it's in the past. Um, And that was deliberate because I was concerned with the past. I, I never intended to write a book about the future.
4: Yeah, I, I do think that one of the things that is very striking about this, just for example, is that a drone attack. I think for most of Americans, you know, we may have a little bit of of uh, qualms or a ruffled conscience over extrajudicial executions or drone strikes that take out civilian children and and noncombatants. I mean, we sort of at some level get that that's happening. But mostly, I think Americans think about our drone strike capacity as a way of solving problems, of getting bad guys without necessarily putting American soldiers in harm's way. Um, and, And in this book, as our sympathies build with this the Chestnut family, you know, when a drone appears in the sky, you really realize for the first time what a fearful thing that would be, particularly if you were living in one of these areas and weren't a combatant at all. Um, and, and I take it that's also maybe a product of the reporting you've done in other places.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of these things I've either seen or I've researched as part of my reporting, um, And and nothing in the book really is completely a figment of my imagination. You know, almost everything in the book is filtered through this very deliberately grotesque lens. You know, climate change, for example, the sea level rise isn't a meter or two meters, it's 60 meters. And so the West Coast and the East Coast are wiped out, Florida's gone, so on and so forth. Um, But even though everything is is filtered through this grotesque lens, a lot of this stuff happened. Um, You know, the idea of drones wandering aimlessly across the sky uh, and dropping their cargo almost at random. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not an abstract thing. If you live in, in Libya or if you live in Yemen or if you live in Afghanistan, um, you know, these are not things that I, that I made up. Um, all I really did was, was turn the tables. You know, I, I brought these things here. Um, and the point of doing that was not, you know, some kind of wish fulfillment on the part of wanting to see Americans at war with themselves. It was more to, to, to push this thesis Statement that that revenge is universal and the language of suffering is universal uh, And the privilege of assuming that those people all the way over there behave in some kind of exotic or unique way in, in response to injustice is just that it's a privilege It's the privilege we have because we live in the peaceful part of the world
4: I think also it really explores that that psychology of the losing side. So I don't want to do any spoilers here, but there's a pivotal moment in the book where an assassination is carried out of a high-ranking general. Um, And, and, you know, it it is from a certain narrative perspective— um, a, a victory for one of the characters that we've come to empathize with. But there's also a way in which you can see it uh, at a much more meta perspective that it's really going to make things worse. and It just doesn't really do any good usually, ultimately, to uh, to kill off somebody on a high-ranking person on the other more powerful side, and side, and it tends to radicalize the more punitive and bellicose elements in that size, side, which is exactly what happens in your book. And I think you know, for a lot of us who look at acts like that directed at the U.S. or any other big power. You sort of think, well, well, why do they do that? You know, it's it, why why do such a thing? And in a way, I think what you're doing, correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of crawling inside the head of an act like that one.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I was, you know, whether I, I succeeded or failed is, is a different story, but one of the things I was trying to do um, was get at the idea of how somebody becomes radicalized. Mm. Um which is something I spent a lot of my time on when I was a journalist. I mean, I, I was hired in, in as a full-time reporter in 2006 uh, in Canada, and about three days after I started work, uh, Canada had the largest terrorism arrests in its history, uh, and I spent the next two years of my life essentially covering that story. And so I, I spent a lot of time learning how somebody becomes radicalized. Um, and all I really wanted over the course of the book, you know, the, the book essentially follows... Um, mostly a single character Surratt chestnut when we we first meet her she's six years old she's this trusting loving endlessly curious human being Uh, and by the end of the book i don't think this spoils much uh she's fundamentally evil and all i wanted to do was show my work was Mm -hmm. was show how this person became this way and by by the time the reader gets to the end of the book um i don't want them to like this person i don't want them to empath uh, to 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 apologize for her um, I just want them to understand how she got to be the way she is, because we have this fascination with the end results of, of radicalization in this part of the world. We see the grotesque things these people do by the time they get to the finish line. We very rarely pay any attention to how do, how they get to that place. And so that was part of the thing that I really wanted to explore in this book.
4: Yeah, I think, you know, one of the lessons in it is a lesson that should be in people's minds these days is, you know, how do you make a radicalized terrorist bent on your destruction? Take, you know, one or two hundred people from that person's group and treat them as collateral damage or whatever you want to call it. Treat them as dispensable. uh, And you'll get at least one terrorist out of that. Uh, And and that seems to be very much what, what happens to your protagonist, that she's she endures so much carnage all around her, so much loss that she starts to think there are only two possible responses to this. One of them is just laying down and taking it, and the other one is becoming very much what she does become, which is sort of a a human weapon uh, that doesn't really necessarily uh, empathize with her targets uh, either. So when you were writing this, you you know, this was a few years ago. It takes a few years to write a book like this one. Well, let me just back up and say, so I was about a third of the way through your book when— it was suddenly announced that President Trump was withdrawing from the Paris Climate Accords. And since climate change, as you say, in its most catastrophic form, is one of the triggering, if not the triggering event for everything that we see unfold uh, to become the the scenery of this book, I find myself... (laughs) going, oh, wow, well, I'm just reading a book right now. That's kind of about why that's not a good idea. And and, and also that sense, you know, Santayana says those who can, can't learn from history are condemned to repeat it. Well, those who can't imagine the future may also be condemned to live it. Um, and, and there's a way in which I don't know whether you see it in these terms because you were writing it at a different time. But the in 2017, the book has I think, kind of a uh, almost different quality of admonishing and warning us about some of the mistakes we could make. Um, have you seen enough reactions yet to to know how that's playing out?
1: You know, it, it's really strange. Um, I started the book in, in the summer of 2014, um, and I finished the first draft of the manuscript in the summer of 2015, um, I guess a couple of weeks before Donald Trump announced he was running for president. Um, and there's been no major changes to the manuscript in that time. You know, the narrative that I had in, in the summer of 2015 is, is essentially the narrative that's in the finished product. Um, and, and I'm grateful for that because I felt like if I was to try and chase current events, um, I would do a really bad job, um, because I can't predict what kind of surreal thing is going to happen tomorrow, uh, let alone, you know, a, a month or a year from now. Um, th- you know, almost everything in the book lives as a kind of analogy Um, nothing really is you know it's not in my mind it's not a book about america the northerners aren't really northerners The southerners aren't really southerners Um, and climate change isn't really climate change i i i i I chose climate change because i wanted to talk about something that a very stubborn group of people are going to hold on to for a very long time um long after the ruinous effects of this of this thing become very clear because this is the way we've done it. This is the way we're always going to do it. I wanted to explore that ethos, and so when I when I see now things like President Trump uh, threatening to, to pull out of the, the Paris Agreement, um, I don't I don't see somebody who's primarily concerned with the science of climate change, and in fact might deliberately be unconcerned with it. Um, I see this kind of stubbornness. You know, the other side says this is a bad thing, so it must be a good thing. Um, or vice versa that that was the thing i wanted to explore when i when i chose climate change to be the the sort of starting point for for the second civil war
4: yeah, I think you know there are moments where the book is seems so prescient that it makes you sit bolt upright. And there are ways in which I think, well, like for example, there's a, a moment where uh, Surratt is talking to a young man. I think he's uh, from Utah, uh, and she's talking about the nature of the leadership on each side of this conflict. And and she she quotes something that's been said to her, which is something to the effect that. None of these leaders, none of these generals, none of these uh, political leaders on either side of this highly militarized conflict believes in a particular set of ideas. It, it's more that they, they're they old and they want things to be the way they were when they were young. And, and those days are never coming back. They're never going to be young again and you're never going to turn back the clock, but they, they won't accept that. And I mean, really having been through uh, a political campaign that was very much about telling people, yes, I can get things back to the w- I, a 70 year old man, can get things back to the way they were, um, which is manifestly impossible. <laughs> I mean, the world just changes. You can't get back. You know, coal is not going to be what it was. We're not going to make cars the same way we did. We're. I mean, these things, you know, are not true the way they could possibly be. But uh, that notion, anyway, is something that you seem to have really put your finger on.
1: And you know, if, if, you know, and again, whether whether I got it right or wrong in the book is is a different story. But certainly, I, I was thinking about it a lot. Um, and and it would be one thing if it was just that, if it was just the promise of of bringing back this beautiful pristine past. But what makes it doubly worse is that that past doesn't even exist. Mm-hmm. You know this this miraculous past where everything was great does not exist. You know that there was there was no past in which everything was fantastic uh, and then we veered away and made all these wrong decisions. There was a past in which there was far more lead in the air. Um, there was a past in which people of a certain skin color had to use different water fountains. And, and, and these things are sort of conveniently forgotten um, whenever this version of events is presented where I will bring you back to this, this great time, which if we had just, you know, if we would just done the right things would have remained forever. That it, it's doubly meaningless. Um, and, and it's frustrating um, because eventually, you know, eventually that catches up. All, you know, the, the lie at the heart of these promises eventually catches up. Uh, and you're left in a situation where you've been moving backwards but you've been moving backwards in all the wrong ways.
4: Um we're talking to Omar El Akkad, uh, his book uh, American War a novel is well you really you got to read this book. But um you know another way in which your book is full of those kinds of allegories that have this kind of chilling quality of of having been caught up to by the present is it's your book is full of walls and borders and borderlines and and heavily reinforced borders. And that notion, you know, like a kid who who wants the food on his plate not to touch any of the other food on his plate, the meat can't touch the potatoes, the potatoes can't touch the vegetables. There's this notion that if you just harden things off enough, you can keep this one group of people over here, another group of people over here, another group of people over here. And at least some of those groups of people will be very happy not to have any contact with the other group. But I mean, when you when you the way that you lay it out, I mean, once again, you must have uh, as as the events here in the United States unfolded, thought, oh yeah, <laughs> I recognize this story
1: you know it's it's strange i um when I was writing the book i was I was really concerned with the idea of of these kind of um, twin forms of violence that happened in wartime, um the violence of movement and the violence of stillness. Um, so what I mean is is the violence that is imposed on people who want to move but aren't allowed to, so they're penned in place, or people who want to remain where they are or are forced into exodus. Uh, and so the violence of movement and the violence of stillness are, are sort of some of the central themes in the book. That's why almost everything in the book, almost all the scenes happen in close proximity to um, either the, the, the banks of rivers or the shadows of walls. Um, I, I was really concerned with that idea. Um, and, and I was concerned with the idea of, of how badly walls work in in reality um, you know they they inflict immense damage um, and if the purpose of building a wall is cruelty then certainly they're effective in that sense um, but they fail to do the one thing that they're supposed to do right they're supposed they're supposed to keep the bad people out um, and instead they tend to pen the good people in you know they they, they tend to do almost the exact opposite of what they're supposed to um, but I certainly never, never anticipated that a massive border wall would become sort of the defining event of the upcoming elections. I mean, um, in the, one of the very early drafts of this book, I actually had, um, I had the Canadians put up a massive wall to keep the Americans out, Mm -hmm. um, because Americans were trying to escape the war and move northward. And so the Canadians had built a border wall. Um, but that never made it into the final cut. I suppose I would have I would have looked
4: a little more prophetic if I had if I'd kept that in, but I, but I didn't. Omar el Akkad, your Omar. book is prophetic enough as it is. Uh, award-winning investigative journalist and the author of American War, a novel. Uh, it's uh, out as a book. It's also out as an audio book. Uh, the guy who's doing the reading on the audiobook is really terrific, too. So that's an option for those of you like to keep your hands free. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Congratulations on your critical success already. Thank you so much. All right. We're going to take a little break here. We're going to come back, talk about us. I I mean, I I do want to say about this book that, you know, as grim as everything sounds, uh, and it is grim, (laughs) there's I don't know. There's a there's a lot of really interesting life in this book, too. It is a lot like a Dickens novel. It's people going through incredible hardship, uh, but also people finding all kinds of ways to. Uh, to reassure themselves that their lives will go on. So we're going to switch from there to theater. We we had the Tonys last night. There's a lot to talk about. Terrence Mann is going to join us. He is no uh, stranger to the Tonys. Three-time Tony Award nominee himself.
0: When you're falling in a, around, you really a when in a forest and there's nobody around do you ever really crash or even make a sound when you're falling in a forest and there's nobody around do you ever really crash or even make a sound when you're falling in a forest and there's nobody around do you ever really crash or even make a sound when you're falling in a forest and there's nobody a sound. All the
4: That's waving through a window from uh, Dear Evan Hansen. Uh, Dear Evan Hansen was one of the big winners last night at the Tonys. It was already um, picking up an awful lot of buzz and mojo uh, going into the Tonys. As uh, as Broadway looks around for uh, a musical that I hate to mention the H word so early here, but I mean obviously Broadway wants to find something that can create the kind of enthusiasm that Hamilton did, which is an almost unprecedented level uh, of, un- of enthusiasm. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Tonys last night. We're also going to talk a little bit about what Terrence Mann, our guest actor-director, three-time Tony Award nominee, is up to these days, professor of musical theater at Western Carolina University, uh, currently Mr. Whispers in the Netflix series Sensate, 8 uh, which I, you can send your petitions to Netflix and see what you can do, see if you can get the change their minds about sense uh, and the artistic director for Connecticut Repertory Theater's um, Nutmeg Summer Series. We're going to tell you a little bit uh, about that, what's coming in that, too. So we've got an awful lot of ground to cover. Uh, Terrence Mann, first of all, welcome to our show.
5: Thanks, Colin. It's nice to be with you.
4: So first of all, maybe I mean, did you watch the Tonys on TV last night? Were you at the Tonys? Any possibility is
5: possible. I watched them uh, at home with my family. Yeah. Yeah.
4: So you know what it's like to be sitting, (laughs) sitting there wondering, (laughs) are they going to say my name? Are they going to say
5: my name? Yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. I've been there, been in that situation. I have to say though, the couple of times that I've been nominated, except for the last time when I was nominated for Pippin, you know, I it was, I, I, you kind of. Get the feel of who's going to win. So, uh, like when I was doing Les Mis, uh, you know, I, I knew I was kind of, I wasn't really going to be in the running for it. So it was nice to be nominated and be there and not not be on tender hooks the whole time. But uh, um, it's pretty, uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy.
4: Although I think that the Tonys typically, and especially last night, the Tonys are a little less the kind of awards where one play kind of runs the table. I mean, last night, Dear Evan Hansen had a good night, but the best director went to uh, Come From Away. Yeah,
5: Chris, Chris Ashley, yeah, for Come From Away, yeah.
4: And, yeah. you know, I mean, there were other, and, and actually uh, Bandstand, which is a musical that's really been kind of struggling quite a bit. I was surprised that it made, I mean, it was, it's, it's been on a ventilator a little bit for a while, but it won Best yeah. Choreography. And then, you know, among the, the, you know, they always do these kind of scenes from various musicals. I thought in a way Bandstand Bannstatt had the most exciting moment. I mean, this, it, that little moment was a musical where you think, oh, I want to go see that,
5: you know? Well, yeah, because of, it was kind of a, a, a perfect storm of, you know, patriotism, music, people, and, and, and you know, at and a, and a new time after World War II, and, and capturing all of that was, it, yes, that is exciting, and it, per, it really resonates today, I'll tell you that. It's, you know,
4: I mean, it's always a tough time on Broadway. It's always, you know, there's always challenges. Production costs are just incredibly high. I feel like watching the Tonys last night, I, I, the, I was sort of sensing that, A, there's a lot of things to be excited about, and probably in the non-musical section, even more things to be excited about. I mean, a whole bunch of those plays, um, including Doll's House, House Part Two and certainly Oslo, and they all look just great, and I want to go see those. Uh, but you can also feel that this you know the hamilton was such a gigantic thing and 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 there may never be another hamilton again but they're right. sort of looking for that even I don't know if you noticed this, but there were several attempts last night to showcase Waitress, which actually opened, you know, essentially at the same time as Hamilton, except that it's right. it's, it's like the worst thing in the world to be the second most popular musical to Hamilton because nobody except <laughs> Sarah Bareilles fans know that you exist. But it's kind well, of, it's I could like almost what feel, what yeah, Lin go Manuel, ahead.
5: Yeah. It's like what Lin-Manuel said last night, you know, the fact that everybody is here, you know, and you're on that list, you know, you've already succeeded, you've already won, you know, and that we're handing out the best of the best is is um you know it's it's great but but it you you've already done the work you've done the, the the heavy lifting and you're here celebrating all that and that's the thing to remember i mean you know capturing lightning in a bottle like that doesn't come along very often maybe maybe chorus line was a big deal mm-hmm. and maybe maybe label mis came close but nothing that really you know rocked the foundation of social theatrical you know emotional intellectual sort of of, of, um, you know, mindsets of people, you know, going to the theater, you know. Theater goers were treated to a completely new experience when they went to Hamilton and uh, yeah, that doesn't come along very often. As you said, it may never happen again.
4: But it may never happen again. Else? And it's so tough just to keep a show open. You were doing Tuck Everlasting, which had a very you know impressive pedigree of a whole <laughs> bunch of people working on it. it seemed yeah. like a really great concept. Claudia Shear, you know, is a a, a great uh, writer uh, of musicals. And I, that must be a very frustrating feeling when you're in a cast and you th- you're thinking hey, this should work and well, we're going to yeah, close.
5: exactly. Well, you know what? It's it taking the temperature of audiences and the sensibilities that are going around, uh, you know, um, during any kind of a season, you know, you kind of get the feel of what people are really gravitating for. You know, people are going to want to wait for tickets for Hamilton. They're going to, they'd rather go see that because, you know, look, theater's expensive these days. It shouldn't be, but it is. And, um, you know, um, so people tend to, you know, want to really, Wait and go to that one that's really that they're, that they're really excited about. Now, in a different season, I think Tuck would have been around. It's got, you know, it's great storytelling. It's, it's about a young girl growing up, you know, and uh, um, but it wasn't the time. And there was a bunch of other shows that came out last last year too that that were really really good, but just didn't have the audience wasn't in that mood to see it.
4: I'm the son of a playwright who had a Broadway show close after 65 performances. So uh, <laughs> I feel for you, man. this is very much in my DNA. You know, I, like, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not unfamiliar with this particular kind of a story. I think the other thing that's amazing, I mean, it, maybe this has always been true. Maybe if you went back and said, oh, well, no, I'm going to do this, you know, musical about a Victor Hugo novel, you know, and, and, <laughs> and people would go, oh, well, that doesn't sound like a very good idea. So maybe it's, maybe it's always the case. I do feel as though, you know, obviously, well, a musical about Alexander Hamilton seems very improbable. If you you try to tell people the elevator pitch for Dear Evan Hansen, that seems very improbable. And certainly we're going to hear a little music from Come From Away, you know, which is set in Newfoundland and Gander, Newfoundland, you know, where people all get together to help a a redirected flight uh, after after 9-11. So let's hear a little bit of one of those songs. It's called Welcome to the Rock.
3: Yeah. On the northeast tip of North America,
4: on an island called Newfoundland, there's an airport. It used to be one of the biggest airports in the world, and next to it is a town called Canada.
3: Welcome to the
4: Rock if you come from away. Huh. You probably understand about a half of what we say. Yeah. They say
3: no
2: man's an island, but an island makes a man. Especially when one comes from one like Newfoundland. Welcome to the Rock!
3: Sorry, Beulah. How's the kids? Not exactly thrilled to be inside on such a gorgeous day. So I told them we'd only have a half day this morning and they were quite pleased until I told them we'd have the other half in the afternoon.
0: Welcome to the wildest weather that you've ever heard of Where everyone is nicer but it's never nice above Welcome to the farthest place you'll get from Disneyland Fish and chips and shipwrecks This is Newfoundland Welcome to the Rock of Islander
4: That's from Come From Away, uh, which uh, got the, the all-important uh, endorsement of Justin Trudeau, uh, which will always help. We're talking to Terrence Mann, actor, director, three-time Tony Award nominee, currently Mr. Whispers in the Netflix series Sense8, and artistic director for Connecticut Repertory Theater's Nutmeg Summer Series. In the next uh, segment, we're going to talk a little bit about what's coming up in that. But, you know, once again, you you use the phrase lightning in a, mo- in a bottle, Terrence. It does seem as though... Any plan you might have based on the past that you think would probably work doesn't really work. So right. <laughs> I, I mean this year, you know, a lot of big stars came into town whether it was Sally Field or 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 Diane Lane or right. I mean there were sort of a lot of big stars who came into town and you know those shows didn't work all that well. You've got a couple of musicals here that have improbable premises. They're not associated with big stars. Ben Platt is going to be a gigantic star, but uh-huh. he he wasn't when all this got started. And so right. and that's what kind of works. I mean, it, it maybe that's the beauty of this Art form is that it just defies any kind of attempt to formulate it.
5: I think I, when we back in the '80s, when uh, there was the, what what we called the English invasion the British invasion, when when uh, Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita and Cats were all coming over here, the thing that Cameron McIntosh did was he made the shows the stars, um, and I think that part of that that formula still exists today when you have. Great music that tells a great story uh, and 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 excites people, it gets people, it moves people, it, it transports them uh, in a very in, in a way that they can't imagine. Then you're really succeeding, and it doesn't need stars to make it become critically, um, you know, acclaimed or or or, or find a, an audience. I mean, the, I find I don't know Colin. I th- I still think that word of mouth is still the way you sell tickets to anything. Um, uh, it, 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 you, 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 somebody has to say I saw this, you should go see it and then that's exponential um, because at the end of the day it's that simple I think, good storytelling is good storytelling I mean, I'm a, a friend of mine w- who was in Hamilton uh, I didn't she was, we were having a drink one night like a year or two before it came out I, was, I think I was still doing Pippin and the uh, we were having a drink. I said, "What are you doing right now?" She said, "Oh, I'm I'm doing this workshop down at the public." I said, "Yeah, what is what is?" He said, "It's about Alexander Hamilton." I said, "Oh, cool! Like a period, like a, like L.A. missing." She said, "No, it's like you know, Lin Lin, Lin uh, Manuel Miranda." Oh, oh yeah, in the Heights. Oh, was it? she said, "Yeah, it's kind of a rap version of." It. I went, "What? <laughs> a rap version?" I said, "That is the dumbest thing I have ever heard, literally." And. I don't know anything. I think.
4: Yeah. Well, I, I also think that that's we, it's human nature to chase the old paradigm and to and to for audiences too. It's like oh, I want to see something that I really liked again, as opposed to mm-hmm. I want to see this completely new thing. I mean, I, I my guilty admission from last night was I perked up as much as I did all night when Josh Gad, who was being very funny out on stage, said, "And by the way, I'm going to be pseudolist next year on Broadway <laughs> uh, in a revival, <laughs> funny thing on in the forum." And my significant. Uh, significant Significant other and I we both sat up on the couch and went let's get tickets to that right now and then Josh Gad said that's a lie by the way that's not happening but see that's that's bad I, I what I what I should be looking I mean the most excitement I've had at a musical in the last couple of years was Town at New York Theater Workshop which is like I didn't know what that was when I went in and it's really I, not like anything else either
5: I know I saw it and I I, I too I was going, what is this <laughs> when you have no expectation and you go in and you really are you know moved in ways you didn't imagine that's That's pretty cool. I thought Miss Saigon last night, um, that was really compelling and, like, thrilling. I I would want to go see that, you know, because it was so emotional, so human, you know.
4: Absolutely. Well, let's grab a break here, and we, I want to talk a little bit about what's going to go, out, uh, go on at your shop. I had a speaking role last year. I, nobody's offered me anything this time.
5: But, oh, really? uh, oh, I didn't know that. I, I was didn't the, get the memo. I I was, be, I'd be glad. Come I, on over.
4: I was the voice of the book in uh, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. Um, oh. So uh, we, let's let's grab a break. I want to seriously find out uh, what you're uh, up to this season. So we'll do that when we come back from this. And there's nobody
0: around you ever really crashed sound
2: I'm sorry there was no time last night for Kevin Spacey's impersonations of Wally Cox Jack Parr, Sonny Liston and Spiro Agnew Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf, Amanda Fish, won the Tony for Best Lobby Snacks The part of Bill Curry was played by David Hyde Pierce On tomorrow's show, The Future of Advertising and now, back to Colin.
4: All right. Well, we've got a few uh, minutes left here uh, with Terrence Mann, actor, director, three-time Tony Award nominee, currently Mr. Whispers in the beloved but imperiled Netflix series Sensate, and the artistic director for the beloved but not imperiled Connecticut Repertory Theater Nutmeg Summer Series. Uh, so, Terrence... Um, I should also say I'm going to say something, and 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 your best move is to not say anything. Okay. Oh, I'm just okay. gonna I'm just gonna put it out there. I was at a party about a month ago with a lot of people who kind of were in theater, and um, and so we were talking about the fact that Bill Raymond, who we all just love and Hartford has come to love, he's did did his last performance as Scrooge in Christmas Carol this year, and somebody who's in that show said, I wonder if Terrence Mann would come here and do Scrooge. So now, see, your best move is just don't say anything. Crickets. Yeah, there you go. Um, so there you go. Uh, but it's a really good idea. I'm just throwing it out there. Good ideas need to be heard. All right, so uh, tell us a little bit about what's... You got 1776. It's up and running, right? It just closed. Oh, it just closed. It was okay. up
5: and running, and yeah. We, we, uh, we, we opened with 1776, uh, w- which has one of my favorite musicals ever. Um, I've done it a couple of times and directed it a couple of times, and um, I wanted to do something out of the box here, that right out right out of the box, you know, to, to just really kind of capture what's going on in the world today and remind us of of who we are and how we got to where we got mm-hmm. as a people and uh and do it through some pretty good theater and and the next show we have coming up is uh, noises off michael Fran's hysterical romp about a, an english uh troupe uh doing a new play on and in you know uh, on tour in in england and uh, and everything that can go wrong goes wrong and it's hysterical and directed by Vince Cardinal. And then the third show we got coming up um, is, is Newsies, uh, based on uh, the, the Disney film and the, and the Broadway show, and it's a bit of a reimagined idea, uh, directed and choreographed by uh, Christopher Demboise. Um, so, you know, things for everybody. Uh, and um, I, I just want to do a shout-out to every, all the folks that have come to see 7076 and who are you know, gearing up to come to the other shows. To t- Thank you so much for supporting and being there, because we can't do it without you guys, you know.
4: And it is, you know, I mean, theater in Connecticut is uh, a, a great thing. And I was watching the Tonys last night and thinking, well, there's some people watching the Tonys right now who live in Connecticut who didn't see Indecent when it was at Yale Repertory Theater. So right. now they, if they want to see this, they have to drive to New York. They have to pay probably triple the ticket face value. Um, I mean, it's a smart thing to see theater where you live too, right?
5: Right, exactly. It Yes, yes, because you're going to get – I mean, look, Broadway is Broadway. It is, is what it is. But it, 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 regional theater, uh, local theater are turning out things, new works, revivals, uh, you know, things that have been done before with a caliber that, that is, you know, um, as good as what you're going to see anywhere. And, um, and to celebrate that makes people makes the community come together i always say this every night before the show i said thank you everybody for walking out of your houses getting into your cars and driving from wherever you drove all the way over to the jorgensen here to come in and sit down as a big group of people and experience this that is the art of community of, of a village of a sense of of camaraderie that we we try to to, to celebrate you know and and um and nurture as much as we can. And that's what theater does. Because, you know, I mean, good theater is communication. Great theater is is communion. And so uh, we're always aspiring to those those ideals.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that communal experience, well, I mean, with Noises Off, Noises Off when it's done well, it's a really, really funny show. But it's one yeah. thing to be sitting there in your home entertainment theater thing at your house and be laughing at something really funny. And it's another thing to be sitting there with two, three, four hundred people who are laughing really hard. It's just... Yeah. A, a really different kind of experience uh, it if is. you're part of those waves.
5: Yeah, it is. So do you
4: um, do you come out every night and and talk to the audience then?
5: Well, I I always go down or most of the time I go down um and right before the show starts I go down to thank everybody for coming and to uh, you know give, do the little housekeeping thing about yeah. you know no no texting and then no photos and here's the exits and you know we've got the other shows coming along. It's something that Vince Cardinal started mm-hmm. and I try to uh, keep up the up the tradition. So I'm there At least, you know, four or five times a week when the show's going on.
4: I think that's really great. I mean, I, I we talked about this on the show a couple of weeks ago, that there's some theaters that kind of automate that, you know, like this voice comes on over the speaker mm-hmm. system and tells you all the stuff to do. And, right. and then there's some theaters that do something playful with it, like maybe they take that automated thing and they key it a little bit to whatever the play is about and make right. a, little, a couple little jokes about it. And then there are other places where they do what you do, you know. And I think the fact also that it's you, you're kind of a big deal, you know. Three-time <laughs> yeah. Tony nominee. So they but, get to see you too. And I, something about that, I think... It, it, I mean, none of the plays that we're talking about right here—that none of these three plays—is like this huge gulp that somebody has to swallow, or there's like a huge concept that they have to absorb, or something like that. But it's Correct. still somehow they're just inviting people to, you know, to to watch this play. It does something. I think it actually sort of starts that bridge from audience to stage.
5: It does. It does because there, but for the grace of an audience, go actors. we we, we can't do it without. You and I say that to the audience every night. We, we, if you don't sit here, then we can't do it. It takes all of us together you sitting out there, us up there doing this, and 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 living the experience and walking out. Making new friends, um, having learned something you didn't know, uh, having been transported, being a little different, having your evening changed, gone from being, I didn't want to come see this, to having laughed and like said, now I feel better. You know, that's always what the live experience is, whether it's a concert, whether it's theater, whether it's seminars, or something, master classes. That's what the live experience is. And I, I, it's so important that we continue that, that tradition, that, that concept as, because, boy, it's awful easy just to stay home and get on your computers and your iPhones and, you know...
4: Right. And I, the other thing I'll say about – so I was out there last year um, because, in fact, I was the voice of the book in uh, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying. So I thought, well, I want to go out there and at least uh, hear my voice. But the you know, I'm, I'm blocking his name right now. The young guy who was in the Bobby Morse role, and that's not an easy role. And no. I think I just also dated myself by calling it the Bobby Morse role instead of the <laughs> Matthew Broderick Stop role. It. But um, – yeah. That's not an easy role. He was terrific. He was really good. I'd never heard of him before. And, right. I mean, one of the things that we know about theater is, for all the reasons that you and I were talking about earlier, people who are really, really good, there's more people than there who are really, really good than there is appropriate work for those people yeah. who are really, really good. So your right. chances of seeing somebody really, really good are very good.
5: Right. Yes, they are. They are. Yeah. And that's 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 the job of, of uh, my job and, and any, any regional theater's job is to, and you know, like Hartford Stage, I mean, Europe in the Mecca right there between Hartford Stage and the Huntington and and Goodspeed and 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 the O'Neill Center. You know, you, you 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 want good people, good people to come, good people to to share that experience, to know that you can go to your theater and say, Oh, I saw this there. Eat it. And then you go to Broadway, you go, Wow! Well, what I saw up in my community was you can say it's just as good, you can say the experience was uh, as, as fulfilling, but that's what it's all about. And to continually perpetuate that, you know, the excellence that, that we, we all strive for is is right there. You know, I mean, I mean Rachel Bay Jones, who's a, who's a dear friend of ours, you know, she's, you know, and she, this was not an overnight thing. You know, she's been doing this for a long time. She's been good for a long time. And as our A lot of the folks up there, and you can always see those folks, not always on Broadway. That's the thing I'd love to tell folks, too. You see these folks on Broadway, but then that run is over. Where Mm -hmm. are they next? out in your regional theaters doing exactly what they did on Broadway. So you're catching all that as well.
4: Totally, totally, yes. Uh, The actress you mentioned, of course, won last night for Evan Hansen. All right, Terrence Mann, uh, great to talk to you, exciting to talk to you. Got to get out to see uh, some of the shows at, I guess I missed 1776 already. That's not good. At Connecticut Repertory Theater's Nutmeg uh, Summer Series. And uh, we'll, I thank everybody who helped out with today's show, especially Betsy Kaplan and Kyone Wolfe.
2: My friends may be trash. And I'd like to thank our producers, Betsy, Pants, Josh. Hey, hey, could you stop that music, please? Hey, shut that crap up. I'm not done. What, you got to be Bette Midler to shut that music off? You do. Okay, thank you.